When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. In a post-apocalyptic ice age that forces survivors aboard a super train, one man will risk everything for control of the engine and the future of the world. Starring Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton, Snowpiercer is available on demand now while it's in theaters. Starting August 1st, watch The One I Love, starring Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss as a married couple who find their relationship put to the test. This romantic comedy is on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I am Matt Singer. And this week on the show, we've cracked open a bottle of Chianti and cooked up a side of fava beans in preparation for talking about the early Hannibal... That's a terrible Hannibal Lecter. But we will be talking about the early Hannibal Lecter film, Manhunter. And later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme... Inspired by Manhunter, during the shooting of which Tom Noonan, who plays killer Francis Dollarhide, stayed in character and kept away from the actors playing his victims or his pursuers, we were going to talk about other productions in which one of the stars took this kind of hardcore method approach. But then the podcast just became us speculating about what it meant that Wesley Snipes reportedly stayed in character as Blade Mm. during the shooting of Blade Trinity. Did he try to drink blood? Is it true that he only communicated to director David Goyer via post-it notes signed from Blade? When Ryan Reynolds asked him how his weekend was and he said, save your breath, you'll live longer. Was that brilliant improvisation based on the relationship between their characters? Or was Snipes just not a fan of two guys, a girl and a pizza place? Well, until we can get Wesley Snipes on the podcast, we will never know. So instead, we're going to talk about other adaptations of Thomas Harris's Hannibal Lecter novels. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films, new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? I first, I, I, just, I need to apologize for that Hannibal Lecter at the start of the show. <laughs> it was really bad, even by my standards can only imagine the iTunes reviews we're going to get about my funny voices. I'm going to endeavor to do better. I'm going to work on it. I would expect nothing less. And uh, maybe later in the show I'll try again. I feel like it's all in the... <laughs> the end. Yeah. 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 Well, 
All right, we'll we'll talk about it later. But the <laughs> Hannibal Lecter's voice is something I kind of want to talk about anyway. But we'll we'll save that. We'll save that. Let's get to opening break. Some good titles to uh, talk about on this episode. First up is the debut feature from Gia Coppola, who is Francis Ford Coppola's granddaughter. And uh, her, this is her first feature. Her filmmaking style, at least so far, I would say, seems more inspired by her aunt, Sophia, than by her grandfather, Francis uh, Ford. Does he, people call him Francis Ford? Probably just Francis. But anyway, this film is called Palo Alto. It's a vaguely virgin suicides-esque coming-of-age tale set in a California high school. It primarily follows the lives of three different teenagers. April, played by Emma Roberts, who has a crush on Teddy, played by Jack Kilmer, who is the son of Val Kilmer, who is also in the film in, in a, a small role. Small, but very memorable very, role. Very memorable and very amusing role. Um, they, they sort of have feelings for each other. They can't quite come out and say it, though, and so they, they kind of wander off in different directions. April starts a relationship with her soccer coach, Mr. B, who is played by James Franco, who actually wrote... The short stories, the book of short stories that the film is based on, um, while Jack hooks up with other girls and also spends more and more time with his buddy Fred, who is played by this guy named Nat Wolf, who I guess is like a, a child actor. I yeah, think he's either on a Nickelodeon show or a Disney show. No. But he is great. He is sort of the class lunatic. He parties way too hard. He pranks way too hard. And he consistently puts other kids' lives in danger or in a lot of trouble without ever really considering seemingly what he's doing. Right. Step one for doing homework is turning off your phone. Fine. Okay. Now, it's simple. The way to write a good history paper is to choose your event and then just explain why it happened. History is just explaining why things happen. But what if I don't think there's a reason for something happening? Well, then you need to think harder. Yeah, but I do things all the time for no reason. Mm -hmm. It's because you're young and you don't know why you do things, but there's always a reason. No? Mm-mm. Okay. I mean, if you wanted to, couldn't you just say that the reason everything's happened is because of one thing that happened at the very, very, very beginning of time? Mm-hmm. If you wanted to be a smartass. Gia Coppola is certainly not the uh, the best filmmaker in her family yet. Yet, uh, it's, a, it's a high bar. It's a high bar, admittedly. And I, 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 as I think I alluded to earlier, I'm not really sure I know or understand like her aesthetic or her style yet. This feels the film kind of bears its influences on its sleeve. I think, but it's still a, a, de a debut that I thought showed a lot of promise. It was it's very kind of dreamy and beautiful and sad, and it really nails that articulate inarticulateness of of teenagers where you know they're feeling things so passionately but they can't quite tell anyone about it i thought that the script and perhaps even the james franco stories which i haven't read i think i thought they captured something something real about uh teenage life certainly i i i felt in that that way at times that feeling like you know you couldn't express yourself you you liked someone you couldn't tell them you know like uh, even if it seemed incredibly obvious, you couldn't actually come out and say it. That was something that I thought the movie nailed really well. And I think she's also, uh, Gia Coppola, very good director of actors. I thought that the performances across the board in this movie were really good. I thought Emma Roberts was maybe her best performance of her career to date. I thought she was terrific. I thought Jack Kilmer, this is his first role, I thought he was really good as well. And Nat Wolf, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. I mean, he kind of reminded me when I was watching it, and I saw the movie about two months ago, of Hannibal Lecter. There was something about him, that vibe he gives off, and I think we'll talk about it later 
in the Hannibal Lecter section of the podcast. But that that idea that this person is clearly insane and scary. There's something very unsettling about them. And yet, at the same time, there's something very charismatic about him. Like, you understand why people want to spend time with him. Because he's charming, he's funny, he's energetic. He has some kind of, like, intrinsic aura about him that's very appealing. Even though, at the same time, there's something about that aura that's kind of dangerous and unsettling as well. But you understand why people would fall under his spell, Yeah, and I thought the relationship between him and Teddy was very very true to high school in which that often people let themselves get steered by this like very charismatic type right. despite the fact that they can be sometimes cruel to that yes. cruel to their friends and teddy is very shy and quiet and it's just sort of like just by the fact that fred is so overbearing he kind of bullies him into doing things and and yeah yeah so it's a good high school movie you know i, I probably not a film that's going to wind up on my end of the year list but I think it's really worth seeing. I think it's really enjoyable. And uh, I think you should check it out on VOD starting on August 5th. That's Palo Alto. Uh, Our next pick here is now available on VOD. It's a crime drama. I've heard a a lot of good things about it. It got a a very good review on the website I work for, The Dissolved. It's called Dom Hemingway. It's directed by Richard Shepard. And uh, I guess the big appeal here, did you see this one, Allison? I haven't yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but everyone says that Jude Law, who's the star, is really great in it. The, I'm reading this description from the Movies on Demand website. Uh, it says, a larger-than-life safecracker with a short fuse and a long memory sets off to collect what he's owed after 12 years in prison. And Jude Law has kind of, I think he's got kind of big, he's kind of big, he has these crazy mutton chops, he's got a very striking look. He has like the receding hairline, which is something we... We should credit Jude Law for, Allison. I don't know if we've ever done this on the podcast before. He's letting that hairline recede naturally. I find something very appealing about the fact that Jude Law is one of the few, like, 40-something actors in Hollywood who's, who's like, losing my hair. Deal with it. Like, and, and he's not even, and he's not, he didn't, he didn't do the, you know, shave my entire head thing, which is fine. I have right. no problem with shaving your head, though. And a lot of guys look very handsome and rugged. You know, Jason Statham has the shaved head. Vin he Diesel. Looks great. Vin yes. Diesel, yes. But Jude Law is like, I got, I got a bit, you know, I got a little hair in front and that's about it. And I don't really care. And I find that very endearing. And I think it's actually, it's brought something to some of his roles, like in Contagion, where he looked kind of, he was like the slimy reporter. Well, he was so handsome when he, like yes. maybe even like, not that he's not handsome still, he's but still there handsome. was a period in his career Boyishly where he was, handsome. Right, that he was so good looking yeah. that it kind of defined the types of roles he could take and mm. it kind of limited them in a certain way mm. because he had to be the pretty the pretty boy, yes. you know? And I think that he's been taking advantage of growing into this guy who looks like a little gone to seed or like deliberately taking these roles that are about guys who look like they've gone to Absolutely. seed. Absolutely, and it adds, you're right, it adds a dimension. When you were so pretty, we bring all that baggage to it and then now you look, he, he's still a handsome guy. Absolutely. But just, you know, but it's, it's sort of like, you know, mortality, age is creeping in there. And I think that does add something really enticing to what he does so that's dom hemingway and it's available now on vod and finally just very briefly i think we both agree it's one of the best movies of the year we reviewed it at length on film spotting svu number 63 but it's under the skin if you yes. want to hear our thoughts about it you can find them if you haven't heard it already on film spotting svu number 63 you can get that in itunes or at filmspottingsvu.com but just wanted to make a mention for people who do watch their indie movies on demand that this movie is now available on demand. It is not to be missed. It is fantastic. Scarlett Johansson playing some kind of weird alien, cruising the streets of Scotland looking for dudes for what? I won't say. 
Uh, but just an incredible film, fascinating, and check out the film, and then check out our discussion on Film Spotting SVU number 63. Now, I know normally we have a very, you know, we have a very standard format here. We do the opening break stuff. We talk about VOD, and then we get into our picks for cue shots, and then we do our review. But because we're focusing specifically on Hannibal Lecter on screen this time, and because the listener's choice review that you guys picked is Manhunter, the first film that was ever made, we thought, let's mix it up. Let's do the the Manhunter review first. Let's do listener's choice review first. And then we'll go, instead of just alternating picks like we normally do for cue shots, we're actually going to go just film by film in the way they, the order they were made. Although I guess we should, we should probably do Red Dragon before we do Signs of the Lambs. Mm, I don't know. We'll have to figure this out. It's going to be interesting. We'll play it on the fly. But in any event, we're going to start with Manhunter. Then we're going to go into uh, our picks. And we're actually going to talk about every single film in this franchise. At, at different deep, lengths. At different <laughs> lengths. But every we've, we've seen all, or in one case, one of us has seen half. Uh, I think you can Sorry. guess which terrible movie in the franchise that is when we get to it. You'll see. But uh, yeah, we were going to be able to touch on everything, including the current TV show, all the films. So this should be interesting. But let's dive in, first of all, with Michael Mann's Manhunter. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes? You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything more than that. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file on this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. So in our last episode's Listener's Choice poll, we gave you three options. The Congress, The Raid 2, and Manhunter. And while it became a race between the last two options, Michael Mann's 1986 Manhunter came out on top. Since it's the first adaptation of Harris's Lecter novels, you know, that's why we're talking about it first. Um, but it isn't the first film adaptation of his work. That would be John Frankenheimer's 1977 Black Sunday, mm. which is a thriller about a terrorist plot starring Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern. Uh, but Manhunter, based on Harris's book Red Dragon, was the first to feature his signature character, Hannibal Lecter, who's played in the film by Brian Cox. And I think what's interesting in this first installment, which is based on the, uh, at the time, the only book in the series that had been published, um, is how relatively small the part the character has is. I mean, the elements are all there. He's brilliant and dangerous. He's uh, in captivity in this very dramatic fashion. 
he pokes at and taunts Will Graham, the FBI profiler who caught him, played by William Peterson of CSI. Uh, But he's not yet the larger-than-life character we get in later films. He's more a reminder of when Will got too close to the edge, when he kind of, he, he got hurt, basically. But the focus of the film is on Will and his hunting down of a man named Francis Dollarhide, a serial killer played by Tom Noonan. Uh, the movie, which was Mann's third, wasn't a hit at the time, though since then, like many of Mann's films, it's become a kind of critical favorite. So Matt, my question to you is, what do you think of the character of Will, since the movie is about him and since we'll see him again in other incarnations? You know, in later movies with Cl- Clarice Starling, the relationship with Lecter is different. But with Will, th- and this movie particularly, sets up a sense of duality between him and, say, Lecter. Mm. I, 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 now I had, you had never seen this movie. I had seen it before. I had seen it once before a long time ago. And I, so I didn't really remember it very well. And I, it was almost like seeing it for the first time. And what I liked about it this time, and I have to say, I liked it more this time. The first time I watched it, maybe because I had already seen the later Lecter movies and had them too much in my mind and was sort of expecting a movie like that. This time I didn't really care about any of that. And I was able to just enjoy it on its own terms and uh, there's actually more about uh, i'm jumping around already but i feel i feel like michael mann is a filmmaker that you kind of like i was never a huge michael mann fan in my 20s even though everyone loves michael mann right he makes such yeah. interesting movies michael mann michael mann he he makes like the he is the mainstream glossy filmmaker that who you're makes spo- the, uh, the smart movies house. that right. Uh, right that critics love and you're supposed to like you know he makes he makes genre movies that are smart and intelligent they're supposed to be so great and i've always thought he was maybe a little overrated but I recently rewatched Thief, which again I had seen but when I was younger, didn't love that much, and I loved it this time. And now I watched Manhunter again, and I liked it again more than I did the first time. And I think it has something to do with, with the way that age and mortality and, and stuff like that factors into his movies. He's not making movies for a 20-something, you know? They can be enjoyed by a 20-something, one who's smarter than me, I guess, at that age. But now that I'm a little older, like, what I love about Will Graham in this movie is is that he seems so kind of like chewed up and spit out by life you know he he's he's wounded he's damaged and peterson and this is something i like a lot about william peterson in this movie that i don't love as much about say edward norton in the same role in red dragon is that he looks so with respect to william peterson he looks horrible in this movie <laughs> he's got this hideous haircut he's, he hasn't shaved you know he has he has a beard but it's more like the beard you have when you don't you just don't shave it's not like he's he's look he's at my stylish beard. beard right right yeah. right exactly he's just he's falling up he's fallen apart essentially and i think that's what i really responded to is this idea of this guy with this incredible gift who has been destroyed by it right and a lot of michael mann's movies now that i was thinking about this this week you know are about middle-aged guys guys who are over the hill or are just the the hill is just behind them perhaps and they haven't quite they have to basically acknowledge the fact that they're getting too old for this crap that's almost like the 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 arc for a lot of them you know but they just they can't let it go or they're so consumed by their work by their professionalism by the sense that they're the best but now they're not anymore that it kind of destroys them and i thought that was really fascinating about this movie is what a good character study it is. It's a very good mystery, I think, as well. But, it, you know, it really puts the focus on Will Graham. It's, it's, it's not a Hannibal Lecter movie that also has this other guy investigating it. It is a, 
it is a character study about this guy who happens to meet this psychopath named Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, and who left marks on him. Right. Like, and I think that that is the the thing you see in those relatively brief scenes in which they talk, which is that Hannibal Lecter knows that this is the guy who caught him, but also that he left some real wounds and that. And I do find that it's a kind of familiar, it's a familiar trope when it comes to movies about profilers and about people, these particular dark geniuses at catching people, you know, right. which is like, maybe you've got a little darkness in you as well. Right. Maybe you could turn into, you've got like a taste for it, I think is like one of the things that comes up in, yes. in the books. And it's not, I think always the most interesting idea it's kind of a silly idea sometimes but i do think that this film and later hannibal hannibal the series actually dig into that a bit Mm -hmm. about that worry yeah that like putting yourself in someone else's head who's really sick you know like who's gone going gone to some very disturbing places that that can somehow that you carry that you know or that that means that there's something problematic about you right that there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. and i it, it, that the scenes in which will in this movie kind of walks through the crime scenes and kind of talks his way through them i think that like peterson does something very does very good work with that in that he you know is basically having a conversation with someone he hasn't kind of pinned down yet with this killer and that he he makes those scenes not silly, which I think they could be, but he makes them actually kind of like makes the sense of like him working through those uh, something believable. And he also he does this thing where he actually and this is not easy to do. And I think without getting too ahead of ourselves again, I don't think Edward Norton does nearly as good a job of in Red Dragon, which is he actually looks like he's working these things out in his head when he's talking aloud. It doesn't seem like he's reading from a script. Right. He seems like he's genuinely investigating and searching. And maybe this is why this guy went on to star <laughs> CSI. in CSI for yeah. so long is that he ha- he brings this sense of inquisitiveness where y- you can see in his eyes like he brings that like thoughtfulness and that way that he's processing things. There's a lot going on in his head and he br- he it brings that out which is not easy to do edward norton in, in red dragon you know edward norton is a fabulous actor but in that role he just does seem kind of at times like he's almost sleepwalking through these rooms and just kind of reciting a script and not step by step you know figuring these things out which is something that i think william peterson does so well in this movie uh, well not at all looking like a movie star like i i it made me go how did this guy become a, a movie and TV star because he has such an unusual and you know, he's, he's like not a, he's kind of schlubby looking. He's very schlubby yeah, looking. He's a little dumpy. He's got a like he's the, always. Yeah. I mean, when I said he has a bad haircut, I mean that like weird fro is one of the worst haircuts. But it's the haircut he's always had. Right, it's but the he, haircut he had on television. I know. On CSI for a long time. I know, but he. <laughs> I, that's the thing is, like, I'm I'm just impressed that he was able to <laughs> overcome that haircut. To become such a fine, fine movie star, movie star and actor. Yeah, and I think what is, uh, what what this movie does well, um, and it's something the story I think it's an interesting part of the story, which is the, like Dennis Farina playing Jack Crawford, is friends with Will, but he also knows that he's also basically manipulating him into doing something that he knows is not for his own, like not good for his friend. Yes, right, and that that, that there's this whole sense that really will should have quit like will should just go home like hang out with his family just let it go and go behind and yet he gets drawn back in 
and it's irresistible to him in some ways to to chase down these cases right that he's kind of a junkie about it like he, he needs to finish it and see it through mm-hmm. but that it's it's clearly not psychologically great for him yeah and the movie handles that fairly well as well um you know it's always great to see dennis farina in a role and he's in a, in a relatively small one here as well he mm. he does some nice work so what do you think of tom noonan we see him before will ever kind of catches him comes close to catching him we see him kind of at work what did you think of his francis dollarhide you know i wasn't wild about it and I, I yeah i thought we should talk about him and then also we have to talk briefly at least about brian cox as the original hannibal lecter but you know i think he's good in the scenes um with with his love interest with Joan Allen, a very young Joan Allen. Yeah. I thought those scenes, those relationship scenes were fascinating, but I thought there was, he he's, I mean, deliberately like underplaying some of the, some of the scarier quote unquote scenes, like the stuff where he kidnaps this, this tabloid uh, writer who I didn't recognize. And then afterwards I was like, Oh, it's, it's Stephen, Stephen Lang. Lang. It's the bad guy from Avatar. Yeah. Oh, totally unrecognizable with another horrible haircut. Horrible haircut. And a very thick accent, like a New York accent. He's like the one of the like cruelest or like most awful portrayals of a journalist. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> he's horrible. Like a monster. It's, he's, he's absolutely <laughs> horrible. But you know, it, it, the 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 whole thing is that he writes. He he's the he's the guy that the the tooth fairy, the Tom Noonan character, kind of follows. He reads his work, and then he they deliberately plant misleading stories about him and that offends him and the, they, they think that that will have him he'll try to attack will graham in retaliation but instead he kidnaps freddie lounge freddie yeah. lounge the journalist instead and they have the scene where he kind of tortures him and i found that scene not nearly as scary and as horrifying as it should have been it seemed it just didn't it didn't really hit it didn't work to me it just didn't feel scary at all actually and Again, well, I'll talk more about Red Dragon later, but that's one of the scenes that I think is infinitely better in Red Dragon. Uh, it's you know you have Ray Fiennes and Philip Seymour Hoffman in the in the uh, Dollar Hyde and Lowndes roles, and that scene, the way they play it, is really intensely disturbing and very unsettling. And this version I thought was a little lukewarm. However, the the scenes with Joan Allen, I thought he was really good. I mean, he plays it he's less like a crazy serial killer and more like a messed up guy who's just, you know, he's got a little screw loose essentially. And I think he's more convincing in those scenes than in the scenes where he goes full serial killer. Yeah, I agree. I feel like, I mean, this, this movie is, it's funny that, that, you know, Michael Mann films always get described as like very stylish and very sleek. And in a way that, that style and I think kind of Noonan's approach as well is not as like, kind of gothic as some sometimes these characters need to be right like yeah. it's not as garish as it needs to be absolutely and, and this it, is a character with the red dragon he's obsessed with like william blake and like you know he should be a little more over the top in some of these scenes if he's going to be right. that type of character and they even you know like you never see him with the, you know the tattoos the famous tattoos right. that the character has and i believe that they actually shot versions of him with the tattoos and like if you look on uh netflix or on like Letterboxd, the website, you can see the poster art that has him with the with the tattoos, but he doesn't have them in the movie. In the movie, he just wears like a Hawaiian he, he shirt just, yeah, or something. He just looks like a guy, like I, maybe which is the point, like a right. quiet guy at your office. Right. Well, that's something, and this is something that I think generally I like about the movie, and I think you really hit it on the head, is that these movies, 
especially later, the later films become so gothic and melodramatic. And sometimes it works very well. And sometimes it veers sometimes into, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it yes. veers into camp and ridiculousness. And this film, I think one of the good things about it is it feels like it's set in our world. Yes. Right. That there are like, for example, the, the cell that Hannibal Lecter is in. It's just a, a, plain old ordinary jail cell white walls with bars and with i think it has like plastic it has as well, pl- you're right. right it does have plastic so but you, but you can't right but it's not it's like some invi- kind of specially designed crazy movie Hell cage Hell yeah. right <laughs> whereas in silence of the lambs and in then red dragon where they you know remade this movie but in in great you know integrated it into the world of Sounds of the lambs so, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter exists in hell. Like, he literally is subterranean. There's this long process where Jodie Foster goes down, down, down all these stairs, and yeah. then into this this horrible jail where it's like the walls are dripping and brick, yeah. and there's no lights. And, and then he, like, looms out of the darkness. Right, exactly. Yes. And the, there's no bars. There's just, it's all, like, plexiglass with little air holes so he can yeah. smell <laughs> her. You know, it's just, and it's... It's it's it it works in Silence of the Lambs, but but it's a totally different thing here. The it's it's a little bit scarier because it's just a jail cell, and it feels like this is a movie that exists in the real world, and the locations are very real. Like again, Dollar Hyde just he has like a grungy apartment. That's his home base. In Red Dragon, he basically lives in the Bates Mansion. <laughs> you know, like it's totally different, and right. that's something I liked about this movie. But that said, I think the one downside of that approach, which is generally effective is that you have guys like Tom Noonan kind of underplaying it, going a little small when that role does kind of need a little bit more. oomph. Yeah, I, I agree. Which, so that brings us, I think around to talking about Hannibal Lecter. Yes. And I, I actually really like Brian Cox's take on Hannibal Lecter, which I think fits in with, as you say, like the fact that this movie seems to take place in the real world. Mm-hmm. Like Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter, as a guy, like he, he doesn't seem like a legendary monster or this kind of fantastic creation, this, you know, right. gourmand who's, you know, he's, he seems like a very smart psychiatrist who also happens to be insane. Right. And uh, I, I think that there's something about that that works, especially in the context of where we'll see the character later. Mm. He's a really interesting character and you want to know more about him. Right. And he's so, in it so briefly, you could almost take him out of the movie completely there. there I'm sure it would, it would have been po- It would have easily been possible to do actually, but he's in there and, uh, and, and I agree. Brian Cox is really good. It's a totally different kind of guy. And I, I think you nailed it again. You, he is kind of just, He's certainly brilliant. He's certainly devious. He's certainly evil. But he doesn't seem singularly evil. Like, Anthony Hopkins is like, his Hannibal Lecter is like a creature, you know, like a vampire or something. Yes. You know, he's, he's like he's like a monster. Yes. There's no... And, there, and, and also, also sort of a superpower Yes, almost person. supernatural. Yeah. Right. And, and Brian Cox keeps him on... A, again, it seems like... He seems like somebody who could actually exist. A psychopath. Right. But which, a very compelling psychopath. A compelling psychopath, which, again, I think un- does at times make the movie more, in some ways, more scary. Yeah. So it was your first time watching it. You enjoyed it, it sounds like. I did. I don't think it's... Didn't blow you away. It didn't blow Not me away. Not one of your favorite and Michael th- Mann movies. No. And I think that there are better movies that we're going to talk about. And, yes. and also, and TV series, even. Um, and, oh. Yes. Bold. Yes. Very and bold, so, Allison. Uh, but I think it's it's a very good movie, and it would you is... say it's the second best Lecter movie? 
Yeah, oh, I'll oh, say it's a second. You took best. a long pause. All right. Well, don't tell well, me why, because yes. we're gonna get to we're gonna, we're gonna talk to tomorrow about. It. I can't but, wait because yeah. to me, it's the clear number two. But I think I, I'm I'm getting excited now for this discussion. All, <laughs> All right. right. Well, let's get into that. But uh, let's wrap things up by just reminding people that this is this film is called Manhunter, and you can stream it right now on Netflix. Now we're going to get into the rest of the Hannibal Lecter filmography. And after a very intense off-mic debate, we almost came to blows. We're going to do this chronologically by the order in which they were made, not not the storyline order. We're going to go film by film in terms of the years they were released, which means I'm going first because the first film after Manhunter was 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. You're doing a, a Dr. Evil. Yeah, what is, what's happening? I don't know why, like, you're, you, yeah. And I just watched, rewatched this movie last need, night. Like, it's it fresh to, in my it's mind. It's less nasal. It's more silky. It's like a Clarice. Hello, Clarice. I don't know. I think you've got, you've got a lot of Mike Myers in there. Right. <laughs> okay. The Silence of the Lambs. Which one, which made many millions of dollars at the box office. <laughs> Uh, yes, 1991, The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, it's available on Netflix and, I believe, on Amazon Prime. Directed by Jonathan Demme. Screenplay by Ted Talley. And as we've already mentioned several times, this is the first Hannibal Lecter movie with Anthony Hopkins in the role. And this was, even though this is the movie we're talking about, first of the Lecter series, the first one after Manhunter, this is the third film that I watched this week. Right, so I watched man. I rewatched Manhunter. I rewatched Red Dragon, which we'll talk about later. And last but not least, I watched Sounds of the Lambs, and it really is, I think, a cut above all the other films, oh, including absolutely. Manhunter, which I think is a very good film. I think Silence of the Lambs is just so far and away a better movie than absolutely. any of them, and it, it, it and it transcends, you know being a, a serial killer movie, being a franchise. It's just, I mean, it. Granted, it did win. What, five Academy Awards won all the major awards the year, you know, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress. And I, I didn't look up to see what it was up against, but I th- certainly think it was deserving of consideration for all of those awards. It is a brilliant film. It's a brilliant thriller, but it's also a fascinating character study. I think it's a really interesting movie about men and women. Uh, Jodie Foster, who has sort of taken over the the place of the Will Graham character in the in the film, she's the profiler. She's the FBI character. Um, the twist here is that instead of being the washed up, you know, uh, aged guy who's lost his way, who's been destroyed by his career, she's young. She's a student still. She's a trainee. She hasn't even finished when the movie begins. She hasn't even finished FBI Academy. When we first meet her, she's still running courses and and you know doing training and stuff like that so she's very young and innocent and she's sent by uh jack crawford who's now played by scott glenn to she's told she's sent to have him take a survey they don't think he'll do it but 
what the heck, we'll give it a shot. We'll send you, you're a young, beautiful woman, perhaps he'll be interested in you and we'll use that to our advantage. But what, they've re- what they're really doing is they're sending her in to try to get information about this serial killer named Buffalo Bill who is kidnapping women, holding them for several days, murdering them, and taking parts of their skin as trophies. Very disturbing stuff. Dr. Lecter, whose head is in that bottle? Why don't you ask me about Buffalo Bill? Well, do you know something about him? I might if I saw the case file. You could get that for me. Well, why don't we talk about Miss Moffat? You wanted me to find him. His real name is Benjamin Raspell, a former patient of mine whose romantic attachments ran to, shall we say, the exotic. I did not kill him, I assure you, merely tucked him away very much as I found him after he'd missed three appointments. But if you didn't kill him, then who did, sir? Who can say? Best thing for him, really. His therapy was going nowhere. Beyond just the, 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 the thriller aspects, the serial killer aspects, which are very disturbing, very effective... Just the and even beyond the characters who I think are fascinating, including Clarice and Hannibal Lecter, who have such an interesting relationship. I was really struck watching it last night, and I was even taking uh, screen grabs and, and tweeting them because they were blowing my mind. Just the cinematography of this movie is just so so good by uh, Tak Fujimoto. Really, really incredible, and the close-ups. It has some of the closest close-ups of any movie. I mean. When you meet Lecter in that cell we were describing earlier, she comes in, and one is, what's one of the first things he says to her? He wants to see her badge. And then what does he say? Closer, please. <laughs> closer. And she has to get closer. And then it's almost like he's talking to the camera because the camera gets closer. And then you get these close-up shots of Hopkins's face that are literally eyeballs to lips. I mean, he fills the entire frame. You can't even see his entire head. You're just seeing his face and he's staring right into the camera and it's like he's staring you know it's like the idea of like confronting evil looking into the face of evil this is it this is pure evil and we as the audience are confronting it and i they're it's just they're incredible shots and then there are there there are other shots in the movie where i started to notice that actually a lot of the movie is from jodie foster's point of view like literally point of view shots and there's a lot of shots where it's other men like Scott Glenn, like some of the other, uh, you know, like Dr. Chilton, the guy in the in the, in the uh, psychiatric hospital where he's kept, where Lecter is kept. They're all looking right into the camera, looking at her, but looking at us, which is fascinating. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with Jodie Foster being, you know, a smaller woman and seeing her surrounded by all these men. There's the scene where they go to the funeral home and she's the only woman in this room and all the men, the cast... Guys who are all a foot taller than Jodie Foster, so she's kind of towered over. So that that idea of her being a woman in this man's world, I think, is a big part of it and is fascinating to watch as well. So when was the last time you watched Silence of the Lambs, Allison? We were it's, picking out, it's been a few years. When we certainly. were picking out movies, you said you felt like you were talked out about Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I felt a little bit. I mean, I think it's it's a fascinating movie for a lot of those reasons you said, but I do feel like... I wanted to talk about the other movies more. Okay. And I, th- I think that it is in a lot of ways as we, there's a clear spectrum that I think these movies go from, from being set in something resembling the real world 
to increasingly garish gothic, gothic melodramatic nightmarish yes. over the top movies and this is like the dividing line yeah but also obviously the sweet spot right yes. like it's something that i think in some ways manhunter is a little too procedural mm. and a little too despite all the stylishness dry too dry yeah and this and then once we get past this as it will talk it gets into crazy territory yeah but it's a great this, point yeah you know this is that perfect combination of of the two yeah and, yeah it's, it has all the gothic atmosphere you want you know yes. i was talking earlier describing that scene that descent into hell going to yeah. see lecter the first time but also you know demi really focuses on details of the investigation which is great there's the, the scene in the funeral home for example they found a body they're going to kind of do an autopsy and they pause to show you, and I don't, I can't think of this happening in any other movie. And I've seen hundreds, maybe thousands of films about cops, FBI agents, investigators, autopsies. They take out this white goo in a jar and they smear it under their noses. I, pr- I presume so they, they it blocks the, the smell, smell of yeah. the corpse that's been rotting in the, o- in the ocean or the water. And, and Crawford puts it on and one of the other guys puts it on and they hand it to Jodie Foster and she puts it on. And the whole scene, they have this, this schmutz under their noses. And I'm going, I'm sure that's a thing, but I have never seen that in any other movie like this. You know, again, focusing on the real world, not a gothic thing that's like, this is an investigation. These are detectives. They're trying to figure out a mystery. The other thing that's in the sweet spot is Hopkins, right? Yes. That he is, as we said, he is he's a monster. He's singular. He's unique. He's not like any other human being who's ever existed, but he seems real and he's, and it's a performance too. I think one of the things that I feel about some of the later movies is that Anthony Hopkins started phoning it in, in a major way. Uh, like in red dragon, especially in regards to the accent, which granted I've already proved I can't do in this movie. He has this strange, unplaceable voice. You know, it's, 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 it's not Anthony Hopkins. It's Hannibal Lecter. And then in the later movies, he kind of just does Anthony Hopkins voice and he'll occasionally lapse into the Lecter isms or the Lecter inflections. In Red Dragon, he mostly just talks like Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> he has his kind of standard accent, which is really distracting and, and frustrating, but not here. Here he is a character. The accent is flawless. He has all these wonderful moments and he's so charismatic even as he's terrifying, you know, the part that I loved last night that I watched, I rewatched immediately because I had forgotten it and I loved it was, you know, in the beginning of the movie, she's trying to get him to answer this questionnaire. And he and finally he, he, he's won over. So she says, you know, put it in the slot, puts it in the slot and he picks it up and he very, very kind of grandly licks his finger and turns the page (laughs) and then looks over at Jodie Foster and winks at her. And it's like, and he's leaning against the side of the jail cell and it's so rakish and monstrous (laughs) all at once. And I just, it makes your skin crawl and it makes you laugh simultaneously. And it's just fantastic. Yeah. And before we move on from this, Buffalo Bill is also a completely frightening, uh, Serial killer. Yes, I haven't this. mentioned him at all. And Ted Levine, an amazing yes. performance. Like the, his voice is weird, so yeah, weird yes, voice, so nightmarish. And he has that amazing scene where he plays. Again, it's another scene with point of view. He sets up a camera and yes. plays directly into the camera. He's dancing. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We've already talked way too much about this movie, but another fascinating scene about looking, looking into the camera perspective. Oh, yeah. and, well, and it all comes around in like one of the most frightening moments towards the end, involving night vision. Yes, he's looking through night vision goggles at Jodie Foster in the dark. Again, yeah. another scene about looking, looking. 
It's a pretty rich film, I yes. think. If you've never it's seen Silence one. of the Lambs, holy God, you have to watch it because it's such a fabulous film. I've already talked like almost 10 minutes about it, which is way too long. So let's just say you should watch it on Netflix if you haven't done it. If you haven't seen it in a while, revisit it. It holds up really well. So moving on. Yes. Allison, what's our next Hannibal Lecter film? Our next Hannibal Lecter film is Hannibal, which is currently streaming on Netflix. You know, in 1999, Thomas Harris wrote a follow-up to Silence of the Lambs called Hannibal. And despite how successful, as you've mentioned, the earlier film was, Jodie Foster, Jonathan Demme, and Ted Talley, the screenwriter, all chose to decline to participate in this new version. Think um, about how much money they must have been offered to right. make this movie. And they still and said no. they still no. said no. And I think there are some very clear reasons why they said no. <laughs> and yet, I will say, as... I mean, the reason that I paused for a moment before saying yes... I figured you must, you're going to defend Hannibal I, here. I think that it is such a ridiculous crazy movie but there's something about the way that it it does not just jump the shark it like pole vaults over the shark and then does not land it just keeps flying off into the distance it is it is like it just throws away so much of the dynamic that is set up before in saying like I no. ate the shark, Clary. Yes, exactly. With Being like, beans. No, this, you know, before we used to have this crime procedural in which we had this cr- amazing character who was a a psychotic genius. Let's make what's basically a really weird romance involving him. <laughs> right. And also we're going to have uh, we're going to have Gary Oldman play a guy who was permanently scarred by Lecter and has been planning revenge for years by having him be eaten by feral pigs. He's been raising specially in Italy. That's just, just going to be task. that's just going to be yes, just to eat this guy. That's just going to be a side storyline. Not so, the main storyline. No, side storyline. Uh, so you have Ridley Scott stepping in to direct and Julianne Moore taking over the role of Clarice Starling and, and Anthony Hopkins, of course, returning in the role of, Han- of Hannibal Lecter, who has been at this point on the lam, uh, living in Italy, where... No pun intended. Yes. Uh, where, where miraculously, despite like of all the many genius things he's able to do, he's able to apparently pass himself off as like a doctorate level Dante scholar <laughs> in this museum. <laughs> and so he's, you know, living there as a, as a doctor uh, when, when basically like he registers back on the radar of the FBI and of Mason Verger, who is the, the wealthy, deformed pedophile who donates a lot of money pig, to the pig government farmer. pig farmer who donates Don't a lot of money the to pigs. the government so you know as we've said this if this uh series exists on a scale that kind of swings back and or gradient that swings back and forth and like from classic procedural to gothic madness right and this movie exists like well on the gothic madness side yeah for, you know but it also i think is such an interesting example of what happens when you just you fully embrace the character who was meant to be the the kind of side portion of your movie you know the less is more character the one who's like right you know that we like because he makes such an impact in these small scenes right because Hannibal Lecter is always the guy in the cell you know that our main character goes to for advice and yeah he's He's the sizzle, not the steak. He brings, you know, the memorable moments and then he gets off the screen. But he is the romantic hero, right. basically, right. in Hannibal. Right. And I, it's what's also funny is that suddenly Clarice Starling, who in this in the past film was this character who was kind of this woman trying to kind of make her way in this very male world and dealing with 
the positions he's placed in as someone who's like a newcomer and an attractive female. And and then in this movie, Clarice Starling's like severely like has her hair always pulled back in this very severe, you know, uh, hairstyle and Julia Moore wears no makeup and she's always wearing like khaki pants and like she's so tough and butch and like no one really likes her because she's so severe and like this is what she's become and hewing out her career in a man's world. Right. And, and there's a part literally at the end of the, towards the end of the film in which Lecter kind of has her, has like you know has her at his mercy and he puts her in gucci shoes and a black like you know uh he low glams cut dress. her up yes and they go they basically have a really disturbing date right what's the main course ah should never ask spoils the surprise Clarice, what are you doing up you should be resting get back to bed i'm hungry hello paul Paul, don't be rude. Say, hello, Agent Starling. Hello, Agent Starling. I always wanted to watch you eat. What have you got in your hand, Clarice? Something to bash me over the head with? Put it on the table. There you go. Hey, that's mine. Now sit down. Clarice. I love and hate this take on their very complicated relationship in Silence of the Lambs to have it be this basically strange courting ritual. Uh, Worse, I think, this is not how the movie ends, but the book ends with them running off and becoming lovers. Right. And this is not even in defense of the movie, just an observation. I barely recognize Hannibal Lecter as Hannibal Lecter. That's a fair point, too. He is like, you know, in the first movie, he's he has these kind of aristocratic sensibilities as much as you can tell from them coming through he's in jail he's in cell in this he like literally is this aesthete who you know only eats the finest gourmet food can translate dante on the fly he's like uh, he's almost like an event like a snob avenger it's like when things offend his sensibilities you know it's like they throw up the hannibal signal and he goes off to avenge these wrongs you know yeah yeah but that said this also is the movie even more than certainly more than silence of the lambs of the other ones that has the kind of like the kind of shocking violence that i think comes out later in uh in the tv series Mm -hmm. which is like not just excessive violence necessarily but scenes of violence that are kind of imaginatively horrific yeah including towards the end on the dinner date which i won't describe what happens because if you haven't seen the movie yet it's better to leave it as a horrible horrible surprise (laughs) but it's it's a very memorable image that you will never scrape out of your brain so i mean so this was the one you were debating about i mean we again we've almost kind of love it you kind of love it yes and you would recommend it Yes, absolutely. But only you have to see the other, like you have to see a Silence of the Lambs first. It, I feel like what is so, part of what is so great about it is just how different it right. is. Like the kind of the wild turn it takes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm, if you're done, I think that's a great segue to the next movie, which is Red Dragon, because I would almost say the exact same thing about Red Dragon. You know, that it's, it's, it's a movie that you kind of have to see 
as an experiment or in juxtaposition with another movie, which is Manhunter. You know, like, and to me, there's no question Manhunter is the the, the better movie overall. And if you were only going to see one version of that story, you should see Manhunter. But it's like once you see Manhunter, you should go watch Red Dragon because it's a fascinating experiment in here's two filmmakers with the same material making almost an identical movie and also a vastly different movie. You know, it's the same exact story pretty much, but with such different treatment in, in the ways we were talking about earlier with Michael Mann taking a fairly grounded approach and filming in, in seemingly real locations and giving it kind of this gritty feel and Red Dragon directed by Brett Ratner, uh, you know, almost taking it into a, a totally different direction and, and, and trying to, again, fit it into the, the, uni- the, the, the Hopkins verse of Hannibal Lecter and inserting a much older Anthony Hopkins into this prequel film. I mean, such a prequel to the point where, like, the last scene of the movie is, is Hannibal Lecter in his cell and Dr. Chilton, the same actor, they brought back the same guy to play Dr. Chilton, coming and saying, uh, Hannibal, there's a woman here to see you. I don't think you'd want to see her, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you you're going to go. And he's like, that's good. Wait a second. What's her name? And, like, that's, like, the last shot of the movie, and, it's, and that is kind of horrible. <laughs> Uh, and the the other big difference, I guess, is the the, the sort of finale of the, the mystery plot is a little different. I won't spoil that. The other big difference is the, the first couple of scenes of the movie are additions, new scenes, sort of what you were talking about with, uh, you know, Hannibal as this, you know, esthete, you know, uh, snob, you know, righteous avengers. You know, it opens with him in a in a symphony and there's one guy in the symphony who's playing bum notes and making Hannibal wince. And so the next scene, we hear that that guy is missing, basically. He is eliminated. He's ruining the symphony. He's ruining music. Hannibal must right the wrong. So that guy's eliminated off screen. And then the Will Graham character, who is played now by Edward Norton, comes to see him about a case and realizes that Hannibal Lecter is the guy who's, you know, the killer. And and so we see him essentially catch Hannibal Lecter. We find the origin of that relationship i guess uh but i was describing this last night on letterboxd as brett ratner's gus van zant's psycho (laughs) right it's almost seen for it's not shot for shot but it's almost scene for scene some of the dialogue is identical some of the shots are identical one of the odd things is even though the movies do look very different you know they're shot by the same person uh shot by the same cinematographer which is you would not expect looking at them at all but they were shot by the same guy dante spinati actually shot both manhunter and red dragon which is kind of fascinating yeah but i watched them back to back manhunter and red dragon you know two days one day i watched manhunter the next day i watched red dragon and i really feel like that is an interesting double feature even though I don't think Red Dragon is a great movie, but just to see them side by side, you because you really don't get to do that very often. I definitely prefer Manhunter. Even you know, I I would say to Red Dragon's credit, you know, the cast is a list all the way. Uh, Edward Norton, uh, who I already said not as not as good as as William Peterson, and Harvey Keitel plays Jack Crawford. I don't think he's as good as Dennis Farina. But you have Ray Fiennes as the Tooth Fairy, and I think he gives a really good performance. As I said earlier, I think his scenes uh, really kind of elevate that character to that level of crazy gothicness that you want. And he kind of gets a little bit of a 
uh, Norman Bates' backstory, we find out through kind of audio flashbacks, a couple of scenes, that he was abused by his grandmother. He lives in this crazy big house. It is a little psycho-ish. But it works. I think it works. He has the crazy tattoo on his back. And it does have that, that gothic aspect. It's, uh, it's more over the top. It's the sort of movie that you want to hate because it's completely superfluous, right? Because why do we we have Manhunter? It's a good movie. We don't need just to see Anthony Hopkins in the movie, just to see them add more scenes with Anthony Hopkins to try to kind of force him into a more central role. But it kind of still works, and it's interesting to compare. So I would say that. So it's uh, Red Dragon. You can rent it on all the usual suspects, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, all the all the normal places. And I would say, if you're going to watch one, watch Manhunter. But if you watch Manhunter and you like it, you might want to check out Red Dragon. So Red Dragon is one that I haven't seen, and you've kind of sold me on it. It's, it's after it's after sort watching... of fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, before we move on to Hannibal the TV series, which is my other pick, we'll briefly mention that there is, of course, the 2007 Hannibal Rising, the prequel the world demanded. You know, I, this is the movie I watched half you, of. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's, it's supposedly <laughs> terrible. It is terrible. The half I watched was horrible, at least. But uh, it is available for rent, and if you are a, a Hannibal Lecter completist... It is out there. Um, it is about the formative years of Hannibal Lecter, which is really, I think, the worst thing you can possibly do to a character like this who is all about... Hannibal, colon, mystery. origins. Right. Like, this character who is all about kind of mystery and, uh, you know, as you said, these kind of undefinable accents. He seems larger than life. He's larger than life. The worst well, thing you can do is give him a backstory. Right, and be like, here's how he became Hannibal the serial killer. Right. And it's just... Yeah. But uh, so it stars... Um, Gaspar Uliel, French actor, as Hannibal Lecter, and uh, Gong Li, the great Chinese actress, as Lady Murasaki. Um, Does it explain how yeah, Hannibal Lecter went from being French to not being French? He's Lithuanian, which is, he lives, he grew up in Lecter Castle in Lithuania. I, I think, like, beyond the fact that you have, like, these two leads who are great actors, who, uh, neither of which seems terribly comfortable speaking English at all, uh, you have this just ridiculous story about world war two and about like uh hannibal's sister little sister and this terrible thing that happened during the war and then how he wants to have his revenge and then has this random japanese aunt with whom he has sexual tension and Ugh. it's just it's insanely ridiculous and not in a good way so uh you know I don't recommend it. It's not a good thing to do to the character, nor to these poor actors. But uh, it existed, and it, it is out there if you want to rent it. All right, well, that brings us to Hannibal, the TV series, uh, which you can just wrapped up its second season on NBC. The first season is available for streaming on Amazon Prime Instant Video. The second season, I think you, you can get, watch the last three episodes at the moment on Hulu, but the rest of it you'll have to rent on iTunes. Uh, or then, on Amazon or, or on Amazon yeah. or the other places, but you, you have to pay for. Yes. Uh, and then the third season, I think, is set for probably it's usually a midseason show. So probably January, but I don't think they've announced it yet. But I would say this is if I were to rank adaptations of Lecter novels, I would go with Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, the TV series, Manhunter, Hannibal, the movie, haven't seen Red Dragon. <laughs> animal rising but it couldn't be so worse could than not animal be, rising uh, yeah and, uh, but uh, that way way down at the bottom animal rising yeah i think that hannibal the tv series does something really interesting in a way by going to the far edges of that kind of gothic weirdness yeah and embracing it and having this real 
like it's set in this world that's kind of beautiful it's this beautiful nightmare of a world in mm. which like just things are just off they're so but um it's a creation of brian fuller who has done a lot of other more whimsical tv series like wonderfalls and pushing daisies and this is much much darker than anything he's done before and also frankly than almost anything i think i've ever seen maybe ever on network television it's got it's gruesome it's gruesome and it's gruesomeness is not like due to high body count necessarily like there are certainly other shows serial killer shows sure. on tv that have more people dying it's not the quantity it's the no, quality it's just here. yeah i mean the, the one that always stands out to me because it happens early on in the show is that there's a one where they they start to investigate a guy who has left people comatose who are comatose he has buried them shallowly oh, yeah, with yeah, like yeah, air yeah, things yeah. Oh, yeah. and and, oh, yeah, and bags horrible. Yeah, bags, drip bags to keep them alive. Bury them longer. alive. So like their arms, like out of coming out of the ground. Doesn't he turn them into? But like, he's been using them as like yeah. fertilizer, living yeah. fertilizer for for mushroom yeah, beds, it's basically. So it's just horrible. Like, and those are the those are the kind of ideas that they have happen. I won't. I will not go into this because I know you haven't seen it yet. But there's something that happens to a character in season two that is so. I like I was watching it recently, and I still like I'm having trouble kind of getting over it because it's such a like distinctively horrible thing mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, the show does have some of the most imaginatively awful violence yes. i've seen in movies or television good morning will may i come in where's crawford deposed in court the adventure will be yours and mine today may i come in Very careful about what I put into my body, which means I end up preparing most meals myself. A little protein scramble to start the day. Some eggs, some sausage. Mm, that's delicious, thank you. My pleasure. But I will say that I think it uses it to uh, uses it well it's not gratuitous not just because of the nightmarishness of like th this is a prequel that is set in that moment that you would have mentioned in uh in red dragon right it, it basically expands it, it, red dragon that, that introduction backstory. of red dragon yeah you know, where will and hannibal are essentially working partners. together yes. yes and they no one knows that hannibal lecter is a is a serial killer yet right. they just think he's his genius uh psychiatrist he's played by mads michelson michelson and i, I think who i think dealing with a character who is so carries so much baggage at this point manages to bring something new to it mm. by having him be this super super gourmand super you know like super civilized but also so dead behind the eyes <laughs> like there's something just so like it's like he's wearing a human skin but he's just not a person he's something alien right and and he he likes will who is played by Hugh Dancy mm -hmm because he finds him interesting as much as like he can have affection for a human being, but also kind of like over the course of things does, does like horrible things to him or treats him very badly without will knowing. And uh, their dynamic is the central one in the series and goes to some very interesting places in season two, which I won't go into, but I think those two actors play off so well together. I, I mean, the show runs with the idea that is brought up in Manhunter of, being able to get into someone's head, right. being this 
kind of terrible gift, right? That exacts yeah. a toll. And, and, and it, it visualizes it in a really interesting way. Right. There's almost this um, metronome, like a kind of metronome of light that goes across the screen and will can reverse into this scene or maybe and often puts himself in the he place puts himself in the of room the, of the killer he becomes the killer it's right. not just that he can like think about it it's like he reenacts them with him as the killer and i think that adds a really interesting disturbing dimension to it right and and the, and the other thing is like when when he those flashbacks are much more beautiful and warm yes like, like the reality is cold in hannibal but those like flashbacks are so invitingly warm. It's like beckoning him to become a psychopath, you yeah. know, which is really interesting. And the image, like he, unlike other shows, and this this starts off more procedural than it ends up mm-hmm. by even the end of season one. Mm-hmm. But that like he doesn't, he's not able to shrug off these things. Nor are we, because they're really horrible. <laughs> but he's not able to shrug them off easily. And there's a real the 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 TV series deals with very like um, intently the idea of being maybe more porous to violence than other people you know that part of this is about uh as much as we always say like there's violence on television you know like what does it actually have any effect on people for will it does in a way you know like that he is so uh more vulnerable to it and can absorb it and that's part of the reason he's able to get inside it so easily Mm -hmm. but it also like infects him in some way Mm Uh, and, and I think Hugh Dancy does a very good job of looking like he's going to have, like, he just looks horrible as well. He, he actually does kind of look like William, William Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. Like Hannibal. he looks me- like he's, in I mean, Hugh Dancy is a more tr- traditionally handsome guy. Yes. But he has but the, the, he, the yeah. beard, the, 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 he looks the like a mess. He, like you see his home life and it's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> like he's got all of these adopted dogs and that's it. And, uh, and, 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 you know, this is a beautiful show for one that is so horrific and, Brian Fuller does some, he has this reoccurring image of a, like this all black stag this, uh, that, that Will keeps seeing that it becomes, it, it kind of becomes a through line into season two as well. And it's very, it's pretty haunting. I, I think that the show does some great work with its visuals and with creating this coherent sense of, of a world gone wrong a world in which it, these these terrible things keep presenting themselves to you and that there's no maybe getting away from them. Um, so I would highly, highly recommend the show. I think it's it feels like almost a happy accident that it ended up on air and that it's kept going. And I think if you have any interest in this franchise, as obviously both of us do, that it presents this really nice bookend to it uh, in kind of taking the character and all of these things that have kind of been done to the character and like running with them and managing to fold them up into this, this kind of neat new story. So that is Hannibal. The first season is available to stream on Amazon prime video and the second season is available for rent. We'll get to our behind the eight ball segment in just a moment, but I was thinking because Allison here is the film critic for Buzzfeed is untapped resource that we're not exploiting enough you don't do enough work on this podcast i Allison. don't you need to work harder so i'm thinking maybe uh, right around this time of the show we should we should have you tell us about the new movies that are that are coming out in theaters i know we're a streaming podcast or about movies at home but i know we've got a lot of film fans that want to know about the, the new movies as well. And I think I think people would enjoy hearing just very briefly. And I can weigh into wh- when when I've seen something. But you're, you're you know, as the, the critic for BuzzFeed, you're seeing all the big movies every week. Yes. I'm seeing probably half. 
So like this week, for example, I've seen one of them. I can weigh in, but you've seen both. So I just wanted your your quick thoughts. We, we'll have to come up with a name for this segment. Okay. Um, that'll that'll come. But I would just want to, what your thoughts of the big movies. First of all, about the the big Marvel movie that's apparently better than life itself, according to my Twitter feed. Guardians of the Galaxy. Did you enjoy it? I did. I liked it a lot. Is it better it, than life? It's life itself, not the movie not the by Roger Ebert. No, the actual concept of life. No, I'd say probably life is still holds supreme okay. over a Marvel okay. movie. But I, I thought this was such a great time, and also so refreshingly weird compared to what's become this kind of Marvel look and feel, mm-hmm. right? Like as much as all of the different Marvel movies have their own. Thor is slightly is like kind of more fantasy. Captain America is I mean this last one has become almost like, like a, a spy conspiracy, movie, conspiracy thriller. movie. Yes, but that I mean Guardians of the Galaxy looks like a throwback to like an 80s space opera. Yeah, right? a, a colleague of of ours, I think John Golson uh, who writes for movies.com, I think said it, it it's like a star not Star Wars but a Star Wars knockoff from like the seven, late 70s and early 80s. And that's really what it feels like. You know, Ice Pirates or yes, one of those exactly. movies. Yeah. And then there's something very joyful about mm. that in the way it... It's, it's fun. Just, I, yes. I, this one I have seen, it's fun. I, I, think you, the, you, I think I'm more enthusiastic about it you, than you You are. might be. I think, I think there's some... I thought, the, I thought it was an action movie. It was unsuccessful. You know, I didn't really enjoy any of the action scenes. I just really enjoyed the characters and the com- camaraderie and the connections between them. Oh, yeah. And it has a fantastic cheesy soundtrack of yes, the soundtrack of, of 60s of, and 70s pop standards basically really great that i already I, made a spotify it, yes. playlist of the of the entire soundtrack but it uses yeah it's so it's so good very uh, good i i love it so I, right. I don't know i was a big fan you were a fan as well yes um i think certainly you, you've heard Wor- I'm worth sure, a trip if, if you've been on the internet at all you've heard plenty about this movie yeah. already but i i, I would say uh, james gunn you know who's someone we like a lot we're yep, both yep. a big fan of slither uh he's got a certain sensibility that he does manage to bring to this even in the midst of like what is a giant corporate enterprise at this point all right so yeah. you would recommend that one now the other big movie of the week is get, get on up yes. which is the james brown biopic this one i haven't seen should i should i go out and see I it i think so this was actually a huge surprise for me oh. i was filled with dread going into this sure. because you know the music we've talked about musical biopics we we've talked about how much we enjoyed the film making fun of musical biopics walk hard and this movie starts off with james brown backstage at oh, an arena no. where people are chanting his name and he's like walking out through the crowd in the dark and james the brown must remember his entire life and before he actually he goes says there's one part like they're kind of flashing snippets of audio and one of them is like james brown don't need nobody and i was like oh no <laughs> and then it flashes to 1988 and it has this whole deadpan very funny sequence in which a drug-addled james brown figures out that someone at like the neighboring business in his strip mall has been using his bathroom and charges into what looks like a kind of business conference with a shotgun and goes onto this long ramble to these terrified people about when you choose to do a number two and where and it's hilarious and it's completely weird and you realize that this movie is not going to just trudge through his life and hit all the big moments so it's not a it, walk hard like not biopic. at all it's, it's weird skips. it's very impressionistic it skips oh. like from place to place uh and i there's something like very powerful about it and also uh, chadwick boseman who's the lead who is in 42 and has been kind of he was like, really good in that yeah too. and he you know is like someone who doesn't he's, he's a relatively newcomer mm. he's uh he just 
he manages to to i mean this is a character who's known for being like one of the most energetic performers right sure and it's that's a tough thing to bring to like the camera but i think that he actually manages to do that he's he's very like he's incandescent in this role wow uh, uh you know and this is from the director of the help there was no reason to think that this movie would be as kind of unconventional right. as it is i'm, I'm pleasantly surprised yes. so so you like that one quite a bit i do you like that more than guardians of the galaxy no i like guardians of the galaxy the best but uh but you like <laughs> but this i one did too. i like this a lot I, and i really i honestly like i would pr- i want i would pretty happily sit through both again right now wow so okay all right yeah. great well thank you for that well next in two weeks we will come back i'm sh- at the end of august i'm sure there'll be some great movies some we great want to hear ones. about but when we get towards the end of the year i'm sure there'll be a lot of really interesting movies we're going to want your your reports on so thank you and for people who uh we, we need suggestions for what to call that <laughs> that's that mini- miniature segment so perhaps so people can send in some suggestions to uh, svu at film spotting svu all right Let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball. This is the part of the show where we wrap things up with three new releases, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Lots of recommendations, lots of stuff for you guys to watch at home on Netflix and other services. You want me to go first since you just went did all yeah, that? Yeah, and I want to say um, we got a great response in terms of people sending in recommendations this time. We aren't weren't able to fit in all of them, but if we we're going to save them, save them for our next show. So yes. if you don't hear your recommendation this time, we have not thrown it away callously. No, we, we're very happy to have them. Yes. All right, Matt. So if you're going first, are you ready? I am ready. All right, three new releases. All right, this is one you tweeted about uh, and mentioned me as if uh, it would be something I'd be interested in i suspected it would be uh, you were right i was interested <laughs> it's pumping iron from 1977 it's streaming now on netflix certainly i've seen it a few times certainly i own it on dvd <laughs> but for people who haven't seen it uh it's a really great film this was uh, it wasn't arnold schwarzenegger's first movie he'd actually made several forays into the world of, of movies by this point but this is really his first breakthrough documentary about the world of bodybuilding it follows him as he prepares for his final mr olympia competition he's supposedly going to retire after it and it's it's a it's contrasting him and his kind of hippie-ish easygoing california lifestyle with his big opponent in the film which is and in mr olympia competition is this shy deaf but you know hulking no pun intended kid named lou ferrigno who lives in brooklyn and uh, it's it's a fun film. It's not really a. I mean, it's a documentary, but they've admitted in in recent years that it was a lot largely staged. Obviously, the competition is real, but it's almost like a. You know, this is interesting. I'm doing this right off the top of my head, but this is kind of almost a a prototype for reality television, where it's real people playing themselves. The competition is real, but. The storylines are basically kind of fudged, written, invented for the sake of drama, to hype up the drama. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger has called it a docudrama. Bodybuilding propaganda might also work because it was really designed to kind of encourage people to check out the sport of bodybuilding, to kind of bring it into the mainstream. So certainly not uh, the most objective film, but a very satisfying documentary. Pumping Iron, now streaming on Netflix. Streaming now on Crackle is a fabulous bad movie. I Know Who Killed Me is the title of it. Have you ever seen it, Allison? I have. And? It's magnificent. It's transcendent. Lindsay Lohan stars as a young woman named Aubrey who vanishes on her way home from a... She's out partying with her friends. She's found days later. She's lost a hand. She's lost a leg. But don't worry, she gets robotic replacements very quickly because that's what happens (laughs) in the real world when you unfortunately have your leg and hand amputated. 
Um, when she's found, though, without these appendages, she's insistent, though. She's insistent that she is not Aubrey. She is a stripper named Dakota. Uh, and what follows is a trashy mystery, a bizarre sex comedy, and an endless parade of crazy over-the-top stylistic flourishes, most involving the color blue, uh, because the killer is obsessed with the color blue, or the killer or the kidnapper, whatever he is. Uh, it is a terrible, terrible film, but just fascinatingly, fascinatingly bad and strange and weird and very much funny and worth watching. That's I Know Who Killed Me, streaming on Crackle. And finally, a film we actually have recommended previously on the show in this very segment, back when we used to do expiring picks when we when it was able to when it was easy to find out when things were expiring right now uh, now, now Netflix y- is going to make it even difficult to find what's new yeah that's not going to be fun yeah. but uh anyway so it was it expired back in the day but it's now back on amazon prime it's layer cake a crime film from matthew vaughn that really launched daniel craig's movie stardom and kind of was his feature-length audition tape for the role of james bond he plays this unnamed but very suave and debonair crime lord who considers himself a businessman, not a gangster, but he's kind of, you know, it's the classic thing. I'm, he's trying to get out of the business. He doesn't want to be a criminal anymore. He wants to be a legitimate businessman, but of course there are complications. It's a very stylish and funny film. It's suspenseful, and Daniel Craig really gives a great performance that definitely launched him to, uh, to the James Bond role. It's got a great ending, too, which I would never spoil, of course, but I love the ending of Layer Cake. It's one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about that film. So that's Layer Cake. And that is streaming now on Amazon Prime. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, our first recommendation comes from Jason in O'Fallon, Missouri, who's actually got a kind of like a piggyback recommendation off of my recommendation from our last episode when I recommended this excellent found footage movie called The Conspiracy. And Jason writes, fans of The Conspiracy will enjoy Banshee Chapter. While it's not a found footage film, it is an effective low-budget horror conspiracy tale. The film combines the real-life Project MKUltra mind control experiments the CIA conducted during the Cold War with H.P. Lovecraft's From Beyond. The film also contains a great performance from Ted Levine, who we were mentioning from Silence of the Lambs. He portrays a writer who is a dead ringer for Hunter S. Thompson. Banshee Chapter is currently streaming on Netflix and well worth the time for people who enjoy discovering unknown low-budget gems. And that sounds great. I just added it to my my list. That was... Banshee chapter from Jason in Missouri. Our second recommendation here comes from Paul in Baltimore, Maryland. Paul writes, I tweeted this as you, at you guys, but then remembered you prefer things in email. And we do. Tweets are great. We love getting tweets. But for this segment, we love the emails even more. Email us, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. So Paul writes, I'm a, a rather new listener. So I don't know if you've recommended this before or not, but I'd like to recommend an indie horror thriller called Resolution, directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Without delving too deeply into the plot, it involves a man attempting to rid his best friend of a methamphetamine addiction by holding him hostage in a half-completed and abandoned cabin in the woods and forcing him to experience withdrawal. From here, things take a turn for the unexpected, but at the risk of over-explaining and ruining where the story goes, I won't get into it. Uh, Comparisons to intrigue you. Cabin in the Woods, Scream, and Cabin Fever... Once again, if you guys have talked about this before, you can just ignore me, but I love the show. That's Paul from Baltimore, Maryland. And I was asking, I can't remember if we have talked about that movie before. I don't before, think so. But I have seen it. We did a, a, a feature on The Dissolve last year for Halloween of underrated horror movies where each day of the week of, of Halloween, 
uh, someone from the site recommended a, uh, an underrated or underseen horror movie, and Tasha Robinson's pick was this film, Resolution. So to talk about her, talk about it with her on the site, I watched it, and it's a really interesting movie. Super strange and smart and scary, and you know just what you want out of a low budget movie which is it doesn't have a ton of production value but they make the most of it and it's really full of cool ideas so i'm going to definitely second second paul's recommendation resolution that's streaming on netflix definitely worth checking out all right and one from your netflix my list you gave me number 88 which is kage musha which is the akira kurosawa film one of his very last films here's the netflix description three clans battle for control of medieval japan when the leader of one clan is wounded, the clan searches for an exact double to take his place. And this is just, it's a Kurosawa film I've never seen. I've seen probably between five and ten of his movies, probably closer to ten, maybe even ten or maybe even more than that, now that I'm think, counting them up in my head. But I've never seen this one, so it's on the list. I think it got added fairly recently, and I, or maybe I just noticed it on there recently, and I, I threw it on there. So it's sort of towards the bottom of my my list at the moment. Hopefully I get a chance to check it out sooner rather than later. Allison, it's your turn. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up is new to Netflix, Southcliffe, which is a British miniseries that aired on Channel 4 last year and then also played at Toronto, which is a kind of rare move for the Toronto Film Festival to to show a TV so, a show. Uh, but in this case, it is director Sean Durkin's follow-up to his kind of big like hit with critics, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Um, it was the thing he made after that. It is written by Tony Grissoni, who co-wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Tideland um, with Terry Gilliam. And it is basically about a mass shooting in this small fictional small town of the title. And it circles around to different people in the town and kind of how, where they were that day and how they were affected, like in, you know, including the shooter. So it is, you know, incredibly uplifting as, as you can imagine with that description. Uh, It is, I think a neat example of, uh, as much as we think of TV as a writer's medium, and it's often described that way, Southcliffe, along with The Nick, which is coming up on Cinemax from Steven Soderbergh, or directed by Steven Soderbergh, and True Detective, I would argue, are all shows that have seemed to me more about how they're directed, or the direction has been more distinctive to Director me. Director first. Yes, than the writing. Uh, and I think that's kind of maybe proof of how... TV is opening up and becoming more cinematic. But that is Southcliffe. It is available on Netflix. Available on Fandor right now, unless you are in New York, is The Strange Little Cat, which is a... I haven't seen this yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. It's a surreal German family drama from filmmaker Ramon Zurcher. Uh, it has it opened in theaters in New York, which is why you can't stream it here yet. But it's gotten a lot of critical love. Uh, our our friend Ben Kenningsberg reviewed it for the New York Times and wrote, Mr. Zercher has concocted something intimate yet otherworldly with this highly original debut. Um, so if you're not in New York right now, you can watch it on Fandor, uh, which is kind of a neat thing they've been doing with a few few recent releases. And finally, new to Amazon Prime Instant Video is Enemy, one of two recent movies about someone meeting their doppelganger. This is the one directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve, who is a director of Ensemble. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal as two characters, one a kind of bookish professor and the other a hot-tempered actor. 
and they turn out to look exactly identical and they meet and strange things happen. That's a really good movie, actually. I liked it. And people should check that one out. Yeah, it's cool that that one's streaming. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. First one is from Evan from Montana, who writes in to say, I suggest that folks give a Mission Impossible entry a revisit. The Brian De Palma film was always appreciated for its style, while Mission Impossible 3 is getting love as J.J. Abrams' star continues to rise. Mission Impossible 4 got favorable reviews when it came out last year, and critics lauded the jump Brad Bird made from animation to live action. Left out of this discussion and generally discarded is the John Woo film Mission Impossible 2. I have been watching a lot of Asian cinema recently, which includes many John Woo films, but anybody who anybody who has become acclimated to CGI can appreciate the ludicrous practical effects employed by MI2. The filmmaking, filmmaking is top-notch, with surprisingly languorous scenes allowing time for sexy chemistry to build between the leads. Digital effects are used sparingly and to great effect, discounting the absurd masks. In summary, MI2 has aged in unexpected ways, but seeing it today invokes pleasant nostalgia for slower camera moves, real pyrotechnics, and excessive slow-mo. And that is available on Netflix. And Chris from North Carolina writes in with two quick recommendations. First off, he says, based on Captain Kempinar from the Mothership's recommendation, I rented Mistaken for Strangers from iTunes. Not being all that familiar with the band The National, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the film. And secondly... Gideon, Gideon's Army is a 2013 documentary about dedicated public defenders who work long hours for low pay but are committed to their cause. I caught it on Netflix, where I think it just recently surfaced after being screened on HBO, but I believe it is also available for rent on iTunes and Amazon. So uh, thank you, Chris. Two doc recommendations, and mm. we don't always get a lot of doc no, recommendations. No, that's good stuff. All right, and how about one random film from your mind? You gave me number 100, which is Flame and Citron. This is a uh, period drama uh, based on a true story about two Danish resistance fighters who uh, assassinated collaborators and Nazis in, uh, you know, during World War II. It's one that I remember coming out, heard fairly good things about, happens to star Mads Mikkelsen as, as one of them, not Flame. Flame has red hair. He's Citron, I guess. He's a le- <laughs> I don't know why he's a lemon. Uh, but, uh, you know, never got around to watching it. And maybe someday I will. Okay. Well, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. Oh, man. We've got some interesting ones this time. I'm very curious what's going to win. Uh, let's start with this one from Netflix. It is Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, directed by Kerry Conran from 2004. Famously, this unique-looking film, this almost experimental film, which has now become kind of almost a substrain of movies, which is something shot basically entirely on a green screen or a blue screen. Kerry uh, Conran was this guy. He, I think he spent years working on the demo for this thing all by himself, you know, animating it, shooting it. Uh, you know, he made it. He made a demo in his house with his PC, basically, and then took that around and got a financing deal. And then he was able to make a fairly large version of this story with big actors: Jude Law, Angelina Jolie, Gwyneth Paltrow, all on green screens and blue screens. It's sort of this pastiche of pulp and science fiction about this heroic pilot and a plucky reporter and they're battling the forces of evil and they're investigating a mystery and I haven't seen this movie since it came out you know it was got a lot of attention when it came out for being such an unusual and unique looking movie and I remember liking it and I'm very curious to see how it aged and to kind of take stock of you know that this this thing this you know green screen shooting which is kind of 
become a huge part yeah. of movie making. Inescapable at this right. point. You know, 10 years later, this would be not a big deal in the slightest. 10 years ago, this was a huge deal, this, this movie. It got a ton of press. Didn't make a lot of money, but it was certainly a, a, one of the more talked about films of that year. So I'm, I think it would be very interesting to go back, look at it. Maybe we could do green screen films as like the, the cue yeah, shots. And I, I'd certainly be theme. interested to just talk about that in general to be like now we it's pretty taken for granted that we can basically yes. do anything. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, how does that change the way we look at movies? Yeah, absolutely. So that's Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Option one streaming on Netflix. All right. Option two is a movie that I already talked about or not not a movie, a TV series. It's Southcliffe, uh, Sean Durkin's British TV series. And I think, you know, maybe there's something we can talk about about filmmakers working in, in television, which is happening more and more. Right. Or about cinematic television or about, I don't know things about mass shootings that sounds like an incredible uh, no. downer yeah but it's a it's a really well made you've seen the whole thing i have seen the whole thing i've seen none of it yes. but i was a big fan of his martha film Marcy martha marcy may marlene so yeah. yeah the fact that it's his follow-up definitely intrigues me yeah and i think he's a very talented filmmaker and he he brings some kind of unusual techniques to the screen in this one okay so that is southcliffe and it is available on netflix okay and our last option is available for rental on itunes and it's called The Lunchbox, directed by Ritesh Batra, starring Irfan Khan and Nimrat Kaur. And this is one of the, quietly, one of the biggest art house indie movies of the year. It's made over $4 million in U.S. theaters, which is fantastic, especially for a small foreign film uh, without big movie stars, this little Indian film. And uh, it's, it's gotten, it got great reviews. It supposedly is really a wonderful film. Uh, we neither of us have seen it yet, right. so we're just hoping to catch up with it. The story supposedly is about these two strangers who connect because of a mix-up with a lunchbox. That this unhappy wife uh, tries to cook her husband like a fabulous meal for lunch to get him to pay more attention to her. The lunch is waylaid somehow, and it winds up in the hands of Irfan Khan's character, who is this kind of lonely older man. And then the two characters start a correspondence through the lunchbox, passing uh, back and forth these letters and follows their lives from there and how their connection kind of changes their lives. So supposedly is like a heartwarming, crowd-pleasing film, has done really well, and I, it's one that I want to catch up with before the end of the year, and so I think this would be a good chance for us to do that. All right. It's quite a, a range it's an eclectic of range. picks yes. this time. Um, yeah, so uh, quite an eclectic, interesting mix of choices this time around. Very interesting batch, yes. Yeah, so uh, which one should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or even easier, enter on the poll, enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com and your vote must be received by Monday, August 11th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at SVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV series. And then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, August 19th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. And the FilmSpotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV miniseries review you pick. But in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer. And you can also follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions 
from you guys, the SVU listeners, and for you guys, the SVU listeners. And remember, keep sending your streaming suggestions to us via email as well, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Hello, Clarice. I still don't have it. Dr. Evil. I can't do it. <laughs>